Hi there, this is Darren Spoo, pastor at First Baptist Church in Tulsa, and welcome to our weekly message podcast. We would invite you to join us in person Sunday morning at 8.30 and 11 o'clock in downtown Tulsa, or check out our webpage at tulsafbc.org. God bless you, and have a great week. Again, this is my favorite time down here, and I got a Kit Kat bar, one of the kids. It feels a little melty, though, but, but they refreeze. I'll do that. So love Jesus and bring your pastor chocolate. That's all you need to do. So St. Augustine said that he who sings prays twice. The idea that when we sing, we use our voices, but we're also using something of our heart as well. And when we sing together a prayer, which is what we're going to do here in just a moment, we have the privilege of all praying the same thing together at the same time. So I'm going to ask you, as we sing this, please don't zone out right now. I want you to pay attention to what you're singing and to be fully present in the moment because what we are singing is a prayer as we come to the table and as we prepare to open God's Word together. that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. And the disciples then and the disciples in this room today, take the bread together.
same way after the supper Jesus took the cup and he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns for us again and so the disciples then and the disciples today in this room take the cup together Would you stand with me as we sing this third verse? speak for your servants are listening and whatever transpires in the next few minutes I pray that you would not give us information but you would grant us the gift of transformation to continue to become until we completely become like our Lord Jesus Christ it's in his name that we offer our prayer and our attention amen thanks so much you may be seated My encouragement is that if anyone ever invites you to speak to a conference in Hawaii, you say yes, and then you work out the details later. <laughs> and what I often do when I travel, in fact, I do this whenever I travel, I, I use it as an opportunity to take a break from the, the weekend and week out grind of having to prepare something. So I usually write a couple of messages in advance so I have them ready to go when I return. And it gives me just some time to, to renew 
and to relax a bit. So I did that before going on our trip to Hawaii. I wrote a couple of messages. I had them uh, ready to go. And then in the middle of my trip, in fact, it was last Sunday about this time, I realized that that direction was all wrong. And so I completely have given a new thought to where we're going here uh, in the next couple of weeks. So, you know, I, I love it when the Spirit interrupts my plans. I just wish He had done it before I wrote two messages that I will not use now. Or maybe the Holy Spirit was speaking and I wasn't listening, right? So that's what I'm going to ask you to do this morning for a few moments. Would you just listen? Scripture says that faith comes by hearing. And I'm going to ask you to listen, not turn there in your Bibles, but just listen to Mark chapter 8. So Mark is what's called a synoptic gospel. It's a word that means same eye. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all kind of look at Jesus through the same eye, the same broad sweep of his three-year ministry from his baptism to his first miracles to going to Jerusalem. John is the outlier because John just zooms in on the last week of Christ, and that's why his gospel is so very different. But in each one of the synoptic gospels, there comes this moment where everything changes. Instead of building crowds, instead of there being a lot of enthusiasm, Jesus turns toward Jerusalem and his death, and here's where it starts to get real. That happens in Matthew 16, happens in Luke 9, and it happens in Mark 8. So I'm starting a teaching series today, How to Be a Mediocre Christian, a little bit tongue-in-cheek. We'll come to that later if you'll just hang on for a few moments. So this is Mark chapter 8, and again, just listen to this this morning. In those days, there was a great crowd that had gathered again, but they had nothing to eat. And so Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I pity these people. I've been trying hard all week not to read that in the voice of Mr. T. I pity these people. <laughs> pity the fool. And if you don't know what that is, that means I'm old and you're young, right? I pity these people, for they have been staying with me three days now, and they have nothing to eat. And if I send them home hungry, they'll fall out on the way, for they've come from some distance. So the disciples replied, where can we get bread enough in this solitary place to satisfy all these people's hunger? So the next time you go to the grocery store, I want you to remember this. The barcode readers, when you go check out, it's not reading the black lines of the barcode. The barcode reader actually reads the white spaces between the black lines. Literally, a barcode reader is reading between the lines. So when we read Scripture, it's very important that we see what's on the page. And I'm not saying that we need to read between the lines, but we need to read at what is embedded in the text that we might not understand 2,000 years from these events. Because in the ancient mind, the Jewish mind, a mind saturated in the Older Te Testament you hear a group of people out in the wilderness, far away, no food. They have a teacher who is giving them instruction from God. What triggers in the Jewish mind immediately is the Egyptian exodus. This is an exodus picture. As Moses brought the slaves out of Egypt into the wilderness and provided them manna and quail. So Jesus, the new Moses, a different kind of deliverance is about to take place, and He is going to take fish and bread and feed everyone. This is an exodus image that is going on here. So how many loaves do you have, Jesus asked? Seven. So He ordered the people to take their places on the ground, and He took the seven loaves, and 
gave thanks and broke them into pieces, and his disciples passed it out, and they passed it out to all the people. They had a few small fish, and Jesus blessed those too, and his disciples passed it around, and they ate and were satisfied. So I had a girlfriend in high school. Don't let that surprise you. Her name was Tara, or as I referred to her over the years, Terror. She was a nice enough girl. She really liked me. I mean, who could blame her? But I tried really hard to like her, and I just didn't. But I, I thought, well, it's better not having a girlfriend. And so I kind of forced myself to like her. Maybe you've been in a relationship like that before. And, and one night we were talking on the phone. That was an antique device that couples used to use to talk to one another before this, you know. So we were talking on the phone, and I said, Tara, I'm just feeling, my stomach is really feeling sour. I'm not feeling well at all. She said, well, whatever you do, don't think about a cup of melted butter with a hair in it. I said, I got to go. I hung up, and what followed was a series of very unfortunate events, right? It did not end well. The next day, I dropped Tara like a hot rock. It's like, I tried to like you up to this point, but I can't do it anymore. I don't know why I've remembered that event all these years, but, but it's something that we've all experienced. There's a connection between your mind and your stomach. What you think literally can turn your stomach. And as there's a connection between your mind and your stomach, there's also a connection between your stomach and your soul. All these people ate, and they were satisfied. Listen, today, if you're hungry, only Jesus satisfies. If you're lost, only Jesus satisfies. If you're tired, only Jesus satisfies. If you mourn, only Jesus satisfies. If you're about to give up, only Jesus satisfies. Over and over, we're hit with that reality. So they all ate and were satisfied, and the pieces they picked up filled up seven baskets. They started with seven loaves. Now they have seven baskets. Well, then the Pharisees came along. Oh, those guys again. And he began to discuss with Jesus, asking him to show a sign from heaven, and Jesus sighed deeply. Isn't it good to know that Jesus sighed at people too? The next time somebody irritates you and you go, oh, you're just doing WWJD, you're doing exactly what Jesus did. You know, here comes these guys again. Show us a sign. Jesus said, I tell you, no sign will be given them, and I'm adding a little bit of emphasis there. You see, the Pharisees wanted Jesus to prove himself, and let me be very clear, Jesus is not about to prove himself to you. And there might be some here today who go, I need Jesus to prove himself to me. Well, he's not going to do it. Jesus is not looking for your approval. Now, Jesus will, if we're willing, reveal himself. That's different. And instead of asking him to prove himself to us, he is waiting for us to be willing to accept him. No sign will be given them. Well, he left them, and he got into a boat again and crossed to the other side. Now, the disciples had forgotten to take any bread. I'm not going to blame a disciple. I'm not going to mention any names, but it was probably Andrew. I'm just saying. It probably was. There's always that guy. They had seven baskets left over, and they forgot to bring some along. They had only one loaf with them in the boat. And so Jesus warned them, saying, look out. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. What does this mean? Listen, yeast is a contaminant. Yeast is an infection. 
Yeast is a fungus. It gets into bread and it contaminates everything. Now, it just so happens the end product tastes good, but the result is, really the, the reality is, it's an infection. Jesus said, beware of the infection of the Pharisees. What's he talking about there? It's the infection of legalistic religion. Jesus is saying, watch out, guard against this. If, if you grew up in a very legalistic, fundamentalist environment, you might like a book by Philip Yancey. It's called Where the Light Fell. He grew up in a very fundamentalist environment in the 60s. One story he tells, he's in college and they're having a Valentine's party. And so in preparation from this, they, they have all the, those little heart-shaped candies with the little messages on them. You know, best friend, hugs and kisses, that sort of thing. People went through before the party and separated all the good hearts from the bad hearts. Anything that was even sexually suggestive or kissing, they would throw those away. They could only have the pure hearts at their Valentine party. Now, some of that's kind of cute and quaint, but it can also get to be disastrous. When I was in seminary, a pastor named Rick Warren wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Church. It was the gold standard for rethinking why we do what we do. Let's realize that the church is here to worship, to do community, to serve. I would never have imagined in seminary some years ago that one day the Southern Baptist Convention would kick Rick Warren out of the Southern Baptist Convention and his church, Saddleback Church, for of all things, ordaining a woman to leadership. Now, as far as women in leadership, I believe that two well-meaning conscientious Christians can come to two very different conclusions about that. But I might be the only one that thinks this way, but probably not. How tone-deaf can we be that in our denomination we have protected churches that have abused women, but we will exile a church that equips women? How tone-deaf can we be? That's what we got to watch out for. Legalism takes little things and blows them up into something big. It also takes those big things and shrinks down their importance. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, you swat the gnat, but you swallow the camel. Both are unclean, and you need a healthy sense of proportion. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, and be on your guard against the yeast of Herod. So Herod was not a political figure. He was a, excuse me, he was not a religious figure. He was a political figure. Now, let me say some things just briefly, and I think we're at a time we need to watch out for the yeast of Herod to, to be aware of integrating politics into the church. Many people have the call to serve in elected office. We support and we pray. Also, as voters, we stay informed. We vote our conscience. We respect the results. But we need to remember what is eternally important. A good friend was in the hospital in late October. I went to go visit this friend. I believe that they are a Christian. They're not involved in any church, but I went to visit them. And this friend said to me, I've got to get up out of this hospital. I've got to make sure I'm able to vote the first week in November. And I don't know why that stuck in my mind so much over the last few weeks, but I think it's this, that that person was driven to say, I got to get up and vote, but they won't take time to go and worship the eternal God. If our hope is only in the ballot box, that is a sad hope. Again, vote your conscience, stay informed, respect the results.
But we need to remember it's not about who is in elected office. We need to remember it's about who's on the throne in heaven. And Jesus says, watch out for these things. Now you're wondering, where is this going about being a mediocre Christian? Just hold your horses for a minute. We'll get there. Okay. So they were discussing with one another about there not being bread. Jesus had just said, be aware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. Jesus said, why are you discussing bread? You're just here on this surface level. I'm asking you to think deeper, and I love the series of questions. Do you see and yet not understand? Are your minds so dull? When you have eyes, can you not see? When you have ears, can you not hear? Do you not remember how many baskets and pieces we picked up after I fed the 5,000? Now, here's where I want to stop for just a moment, because Jesus is going to reference two miracles, the feeding of the 5,000, which we didn't read, and the feeding of the 4,000, which we did read. And I'm also going to go right on up to the very edge of biblical interpretation with what I'm about to say. Because Jesus says, when we fed the 5,000, how many baskets did we pick up? Twelve. Okay? And when we fed the 4,000, how many baskets did we pick up? Seven. And Jesus says, do you not yet understand? Now, the solid biblical ground here is when Jesus multiplied the fish and the loaves, that's his picture of the kingdom as a place of abundance, that God is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. But I know Mark, and Mark never mentions a specific number without it having meaning. The feeding of the 5,000. Five is a Jewish number that represents the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And from that, there were left over 12 baskets. Twelve is the number of the people of God, twelve tribes of Israel, twelve disciples, twelve thrones, the full number of the people of God, the 144,000 in heaven, which is a factor of twelve. Jesus is saying, I want you to change from being a people based on law, I want to create a new people based on grace. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. Do you not yet understand? Then he feeds the 4,000. Well, four is a creation number, okay? We still talk about it today. We talk about north, south, east, west, all four directions, right? The length, width, and breadth of all creation. How many baskets did we pick up from that? Seven. Well, seven is another creation number. That God is getting ready to create a new people, new relationship, new people, new creation. Do you not yet understand I am doing a new thing. Well, what does this have to do with being a mediocre Christian? Hold your horses a little bit more. We're about to get there. I think I just lost some of you. You're like, nope, I'm not listening anymore. Hang, hang on, we're getting close. Do you not yet understand? So then Jesus came to Bethsaida, and the people brought a blind man to him and begged Jesus to touch him, and Jesus took the blind man outside the village. Now, here's a one-of-a-kind miracle of Jesus. This is the only miracle that we have of Jesus where he does a progressive healing, that he heals this person gradually. This is not only a miracle, this is a parable of what's about to happen, okay? So Jesus took the man outside the village. He took some of his spit and put it in his eyes and laid his hands on him and said, do you see anything? And looking around, he said, well, I see people, but they look like trees, but trees that are walking around. In other words, very blurry. 
Then Jesus laid his, eyes, his hands on his eyes again and looked steadily at him, and the man could see everything plainly. And he sent him home and said, don't even go into the village. What happens here? The man is blind. Then what he could see was blurry, and then it became clear. Remember the question Jesus just asked. Do you not understand yet? And so we see this progressive clarity from blindness to blurriness to seeing things in a brilliant way. That same cycle is about to happen again with Jesus' next question. Who do the people say I am? They said John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say one of the prophets. In other words, Jesus, some people think you're a good man. Here's the idea. Jesus said, if that's your thoughts of me, you are blind. If you think Jesus is just a good man, you have not really seen who he is at all. Blind. So then Peter pipes in. Jesus said, but, but who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Now that's a right answer, but it's still a little blurry. Because that title, Christ, Messiah, Anointed One, was saddled with all kind of baggage. Some of it was political baggage. People believed, Jews believed, that when the Messiah came along, he was going to be the political liberator. Rome was going to get kicked out. Some looked at in a religious way that he would reestablish the temple once and for all and reestablish the nation state of Israel. It was the right title, but it was loaded with a lot of baggage that didn't really matter. In other words, just by throwing out the word Christ, you might not really know what you're talking about. The vision is still blurry. Then Jesus gives the clear picture. Then he explained to them for the first time that the Son of Man must go through suffering, be rejected by the elders, the high priests, the scribes, and be killed. And three days later, rise again. He told them this clearly, plainly. Peter took him aside and began to reprove him for this, but turning, Jesus said, get out of my sight, you Satan, for you are not on the side of God, but on the side of man. So what we have here with Peter, once he sees Christ clearly, he has the tendency to want to domesticate Jesus, to make Jesus a little more gentle and not to see things completely clear. So now here's where we come to this idea of how to be a mediocre Christian. I hope you know that this teaching series is a little bit tongue-in-cheek. If I were to truly have a teaching series and, and teach this at base value, I want to teach you how to be a mediocre Christian. Let's all do that. You would fire me, and rightly so. But here's my question. If it would be wrong for me to teach it, why is it right for us to live it? And I'm not casting judgment on anybody else. I just know my own heart sometimes. If it's wrong for me to teach it overtly, why is it covertly okay for us to live that way just as a mediocre Christian? So here's a name you don't know. His, his name is Telemachus. He lived about 400 years after Jesus. Telemachus lived outside of Rome and saw the barbarity of the gladiatorial games. This was as the Roman Empire was about to dissolve. The last emperor, Honorius, was on the throne but he kept giving people what they wanted, bread and circuses. And so Telemachus was so disturbed by the barbarity and impressed by the Spirit of God, he got up from his house, walked into the city of Rome, walked into the middle of the gladiatorial arena, and stood before everyone and said, 
in the name of Christ, let this madness stop. And the people began to laugh at him, and one of the gladiators unsheathed his sword and ran him through, and he died there on the Colosseum floor. But then first one or two people, then groups, then masses left the Colosseum never to return because of one man's boldness for Christ. Now, we love a good story like that. We say, that's the way I want to live. That's the way I want to be. Yet, we won't stand up to the baseball coach when he wants to practice on Sunday. Truth is, we settle for a lot of stuff. We tend to live mediocre lives. So here's where Jesus turns, and I'm going to use a very specific word here. He turns to his disciples. You know what we're called to? When we say yes to Jesus, we're not called to be Christians in the nominal sense. We are called to be disciples in the full sense. The word disciple is used 269 times in the older, excuse me, in the New Testament. The word Christian is used three times. And there's nothing wrong with the word Christian. It's actually a very good word. But what many of us have done is we have adopted a nominal Christian lifestyle, nominal meaning I'm a Christian in name only. When we are called to be disciples, and here's how Dallas Willard defines a disciple. A disciple is someone who follows Jesus everywhere, in front of everyone, all the time. Somebody who follows Jesus everywhere, before everyone, all the time. Another way of saying that is being a disciple is learning how to follow Jesus in any situation. That's what we are called to be. Instead of being mediocre Christians, we are called to be fully devoted disciples, and that's where Jesus turns the table on what He's about to do, and He points it to us. And He said, if you want to go with Me, if you really want to be My disciple, here it is, you must disregard yourself. One of the first steps in being a disciple is we put down the weight of being number one in our lives. Do you realize how heavy that is? To always say, me first. We put down the weight of having to have our own way, and we now say, I live at the pleasure of somebody else. So you must disregard yourself. Take up your cross. The cross Jesus was speaking about did not look like this. It would be a lot more rough and a lot heavier. What does that mean? means every day we get up and we say, today I die. Today I die to what I want, and I let Christ live His life through me. And then, to follow Jesus, to follow Him everywhere, in front of everybody, all the time. For whoever wants to preserve their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and my sake will preserve it. What good is it if you gain the whole world, yet lose your own soul? So, last week, as my wife and I were having breakfast at a little place that we went to in Hawaii, yeah, I'm rubbing it in just a little bit there. We had a young waiter about the age of my kids, and, and we started striking up a conversation, and 
This doesn't happen very often, but I'm having a conversation with the waiter, and he starts sharing some things going on in his life, and he goes away to get the check, and my wife went back to the room to get something, and so the waiter comes back, and we strike up a conversation, and I said, his name is Joshua. I said, Joshua, I don't know why I'm going to tell you this, but I'm just going to tell you this. Seek the Lord. I said, it's not, not often I, I say those words, but I just want to encourage you, seek the Lord. And what happened next, he just started pouring out everything that he was facing in life, including the expense of living on the islands, including about to have his first child, including what he was going to name that first child, all the weight of that. So what I said to Joshua, I say to you today. Seek the Lord. Maybe I'm too old now to mess around anymore. And maybe I'm too tired of maintaining the institution of the church. If I'm not mistaken, the church is a group of people who follow Jesus and the way of Jesus together. Let's do that. How do we do that? I don't have all the steps. But if you're to seek the Lord, I know it starts with this, repenting. Repenting of just being a nominal Christian, a Christian in name only, and not trying to follow Jesus everywhere in front of everyone all the time. That's a big order, but it starts there to say, I really am going to follow Jesus. And the second thing, once we repent, is every day, and I, I used this word in the first service, and I, I edited it on the spot before we were done. The second word I used is we need to resolve to follow Jesus, but I think that's the wrong word. Because if your resolve is like mine, it rises and falls, waxes and wanes all over the place. To surrender. To surrender and truly give my life to the control of Jesus. Here's how C.S. Lewis put it in one of his most memorable quotes. He said this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. Yet that's maybe what we've made of it. Let's not anymore. Let's seek the Lord. Stand with me and let's pray together. Jesus, as you talked with your disciples through Mark 8, so I think you're talking with us today, discipleship is the opportunity to get real, to quit living on the surface of things, to quit living in mediocrity, and to give ourselves fully and wholly to you, whatever that means. So I pray for us as individuals and as a church that we would repent of nominal Christianity. That's what our culture expects and applauds, that we have faith, but we just keep it to ourselves. And we don't let it affect our day-to-day -day life. Help us to go against culture. Help us to go against our convenience. Not that we want to be weird, but we just want to be real. Would we also surrender today and again tomorrow and again tomorrow until we develop a new habit, a new muscle memory of surrendering our lives to you? Forgive us where we've been blind. Help us when we've been blurry and help us to see with true clarity who you are as Lord of all and as Lord of our lives. 
It's in the name of Jesus we offer our prayer. Amen. So we're not going to open up the follow-up room now. I want us to stand before the Lord and worship Him together. And we're going to do that through, as we used a song at the beginning, we're going to use a song at the end to pray to the Lord and to say the same thing together. It's an old hymn, and some of you will know this hymn, Take My Life and Let It, let it Be. What I didn't know is there's a story behind it. It's written by Frances Ridley Havergal. And she wrote it about 100 years ago, a little bit more actually, probably 140 years ago. And she wrote a book about every line in this song. Take my hands, take my heart, take my feet, take my life, right? She just surrenders through this song every part of herself. And so she's written a book about this. I'm going to encourage you not to read it because it's not very good. <laughs> it's written in a much older style. But I'm glad I read it because at the end, she did something that I didn't see coming. She said, we give our hands and our feet and our hearts to Jesus because that's exactly what he's given to us. His hands pierced on the cross, his feet. He walked the dusty streets, his heart to all of us. He gave his life, so we give our lives as an act of worship in return. So I invite you, where there's been nominal Christianity in your life, to repent of it right here, right now, and also to surrender yourself one part at a time to the Lordship of Jesus as we worship him together right now. Thanks so much for listening to our weekly message podcast. At the end of each worship service on Sunday morning, I offer a simple blessing, and I offer that blessing to you today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, and may God grant you peace, both now and forever. Amen.